this time, we're starting to arrive at a place where because of the chiasmus, the literature that's laid out a specific way, it gives us clues that we're starting to turn a corner and pointing ahead in history. I've told you before that there were several parallels there, some of which gave us additional information, additional detail about things that were happening in a near future event for Daniel, especially Antiochus IV and the havoc he wreaked upon Israel. But we're also starting to turn a corner and pointing ahead in history to a future event that's going to include believers when they are alive on the earth when that happens. Could be that we'll be alive for it. We don't know. But this future global crisis has to do with that person that has been dubbed the Antichrist. So last week, to catch us up just a little bit on last week's episode, <laughs> we looked at Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifests that he chose for himself. And we understand because of Daniel's revelation to us, because of the supernatural revelation that came to him, that Antiochus came in like a flood and destroyed Jerusalem. And those who knew God were able to stand firm and to take appropriate action. True believers refused to cave in either to the temptation to uh, enjoy earthly treasure, which was offered to them, a bribe, so to speak, for them to recant their faith in Yahweh and to start worshiping a different god, pagan gods. But they also refused to give in to fear because there was a fear of retri retribution or punishment or death. And so many stood firm, and we appreciate hearing that because they become witnesses to us that it is possible to stand firm in your faith even when things get tough. Well, the second great crisis that we're looking at today is the time when the Antichrist will be upon the earth. This will be a major event, and it's going to be worldwide. It will be global in scope, which is different than the kind of crisis that happened when Antiochus was alive. The king who exalts himself is the king who's going to exalt himself above every other god, as we'll see when we start to look at his character. We're going to take the same approach with the Antichrist in this section of Daniel 11 and the first four verses of chapter 12, as we did with Antiochus. We're going to look at his character, his career, and the crisis that will befall the earth because of this leader when he's there. As we talked about last week, when we know that something painful is coming, we can sort of prepare ourselves. We can steal ourselves for that. I use the idea of a broken arm, and that when they tell you step by step what you can expect as they're going to set that arm and wrap it, then you can understand that there will be healing eventually. But we know it's going to be painful, and that's specifically what we're getting to see at the first part, especially as the character and career of the Antichrist starts to become uh, more detailed for us. We're going to understand that this crisis that's going to befall us if we're alive on the earth is going to be horrific. It's going to be painful, and it's going to be worldwide. Let me take a peek at the ending. You know how you do when you pick up a good novel and you want to turn and look at the back page? We kind of get to do that a little bit in Scripture. So we're going to peek at that because it's going to give us a clue of how we're going to be needing to approach our look at this great crisis. It says in chapter 2 of, uh, verse 2 of chapter 12 in Daniel, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. 
That's interesting, isn't it? That shows me that something is happening here that's very similar to some other passages that we have read, including some of Jesus' own words about a great separation that will happen toward the end. Separation of the sheep and the goats, or some other parables that he was using to show that there are going to be two destinations. And at the very end, those who have been in sleep, as Paul the Apostle would use that term, which means that they died physically, are going to be awakened spiritually, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. A great big separation. Well, we also see that there's a difference between crisis number one and crisis number two. Because we know that in Daniel's chiastic structure that we've been looking at, this literary style that gives us a clue, some of our super sleuthing tools to help us get a good interpretation so that we'll have a more accurate application, there are times when a parallel passage contains different details, and that will point us in a new direction. That's what we're finding out between verses 35 and 36 of chapter 11. We see that the kings of the north and the south aren't fighting each other as they were in the first 35 verses of chapter 11. Somebody new is entering the picture here. There's a new ruler that arises after Antiochus, much farther later in history, near the second coming of Christ, in fact. So we know there's going to be at least a 2,000-year period, a huge gap between these two verses of 35 and 36. How do we get that? Parallelism, chiastic structure, new detail. All of our super sleuthing tools are coming into play. So let me read verses 40 and 41, and then we're going to see how the kings of both north and south are different. Starting at verse 40, at the time of the end, there's that phrase again, the king of the south will engage him. Remember, we need to get our pronouns straight, and parallelism helps us do that. This is the different him than the previous Antiochus hymn. And the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. That's a, another term for Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon, those would be the Ammonites, will be delivered from his hand. Now, these things happened in Antiochus's time, very similar to that. But this is a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen in the global crisis. But it's going to be different in the global crisis. Secondly, we can see that now that there's this new ruler that's going to rise to power long after Antiochus has risen and fallen and much closer to the time when Christ comes again. This is starting at uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Aha. That's different from the previous verses in chapter 11 about the kings of the north and south. Such as has not happened from the beginning of nations. That's unprecedented. And this means it's going to be horrific. But at that time, your people, God's people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Now, note here, a little parenthetical note about that term delivered. This reference matches other references to the very end of time, which we'll see in a few moments, especially about those whose names are written in the book. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and ever, everlasting contempt. This also matches other references to the very end of time where there's this stark separation into two different uh, eternal destinations. Michael the Archangel, this is interesting. There are not that many times in scripture when Michael appears. This is one of them, Daniel chapter 12. We also see it in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Sounds like this is really talking about the same event, because it is. Now, we also understand from this, as I'm setting the stage for us to look at the character, the career, and the crisis, that the Antichrist's days are also numbered just as were the days of Antiochus. We see in Daniel's words about the second great crisis that the Antichrist will be successful, quote, until the time of his wrath is finished. That's very similar to what happened with Antiochus IV. We knew that his days were numbered. Who numbered them? God did. God is the one who foresees things. And even though he may delay his judgment for a time, as we saw a wonderful example of that in a different foreshadowing in the growth encounter earlier this morning, we know that there's good reason why he waits for that judgment to, to fall upon people. And one of the things that we know about in the New Testament is that his waiting is a part of his patience because he wants everybody to have an opportunity to make the right decision and to come to him in faith. Well, some insist, in fact, quite a few scholars would insist that the second ruler is the same as the first, that this whole passage is talking about Antiochus IV. They would say, no, no, this whole thing has to do with just one person. There are a few, a little smaller number of scholars who would say that this is, the whole passage is all about the Antichrist. And yet, because of the chiastic structure, parallelism, literary style, and the differences in detail, I really believe that there are a minority, but the ones who are right, who recognize there's a difference between Antiochus and the Antichrist. And one of the things that we see in the difference in detail is the fact that the Antichrist is going to exalt himself over all gods. Let me read this section, and then we're going to notice some important details here. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors or for the God loved by women or for any other God, for he will boast that he is greater than all of them. Instead of those, he will worship the God of fortresses, a God his ancestors never knew, and lavish on him gold, silver, precious stones, and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign God's help, he will attack the strongest fortress. He will honor those who submit to him and appoint them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that he would exalt himself above all gods and have no regard for the gods of his ancestors. That's interesting because we understand that the Antichrist will not have any regard for any of his ancestors, but Antiochus did. As you'll recall, he set up an idol to Jupiter or Zeus in the temple of Yahweh, 
which means that he did have a regard for the God of his ancestors. That's one of the major factors that are different to show us that they were talking about two different leaders here. Now, we don't know about what some of the things are in this section and what they refer to yet, because we don't have the clear lens of history to look back on. These are future events. They haven't happened yet. They will become clearer in due course, but just as we have discussed before, even Daniel didn't know specifically what some of the things he was prophesying would look like in detail. Now that we look back on it because of history, it makes total sense to us. So why are we looking ahead at things that we don't know for sure? Because we're gonna have enough of a clue to help us to stand firm and to live faithfully and not to give in to some people who might uh, keep us from staying completely firm and grounded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In God's good time, these things will be revealed in detail and we'll be able to stand firm. We do know, however, that because the archetype seen in Antiochus IV, that the Antichrist will exalt himself even more than Antiochus did, and that he will be completely against God's people. He will use deception, this Antichrist. He's going to use flattery, much in the same way that Antiochus did when he pretended to be a supporter of Israel before he swept in and destroyed Jerusalem and many will fall for this ruler's flattery. Jesus spoke about the Antichrist. He was preparing his followers, those of us who are his followers, that would include us, for the great tribulation to come in the future. And he said, this is from Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Many believers who don't know these words of Jesus and who don't know the prophecies will be deceived for a time. Because false Christs and prophets will appear, we know that's going to happen. Many will think that the Antichrist is really the Christ and he will deceive many, employing the use of powerful false signs and wonders. Many well-intentioned believers will even fall for them, and they'll be deceived, at least for a time. That's why it's so important for us to really know Jesus, to know the real thing, so that we can recognize the counterfeit. We can know from his word what Jesus is truly like and what we are supposed to behave like as we are becoming Christ-like. That way, we can read the signs when they're happening, and we can say, I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to be deceived. I think it's also very important for us to recognize, especially after looking back at the last 14 or 15 months, we need to be very cautious as believers not to offer our allegiance to human leaders too quickly who may claim to be supporters of our spiritual cause because we need to be very cautious about combining our spiritual lives with political and military lives. That's something that Jesus continually taught. The kingdom of heaven is so different from the kingdom of the world, and we need to continue to guard ourselves against trying to combine those two things too closely. Now we're going to get to the career of the Antichrist. Starting at verse 40 of chapter 11. Then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. This is sounding familiar, is it not? 
But as I mentioned, we're talking about a foreshadowing, which means that these things can happen very similarly to the time of Antiochus, but they'll be happening in the future during the Great Tribulation. The king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers, and a vast navy. He will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. He will enter the glorious land of Israel, and many nations will fall, but Moab, Edom, and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries, and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians, in Hebrew that would be the Cushites, will be his servants. Here's a note here, just for a little historical background. The Libyans and Ethiopians, or the Cushites, were allies of Egypt back in Antiochus's day. They were in sort of a league of, of nations or federation coalition, so to speak. So when somebody conquered Egypt, they needed to conquer that whole region. And what happened from history and looking back at it with Antiochus, we recognized that some of these other nations around there broke ranks with Egypt and tried to side with the, who they perceived was going to be the winner. And so they sided with Antiochus. That's why when the Great Tribulation happens, we're going to have to keep our eye on all of those nations because something big is going to happen and it's possible that they may be deceived as well, and they may jump on board with the Antichrist, thinking that they'll have a greater chance of winning over Egypt. We're not sure how that's going to play out yet, but we're seeing a foreshadowing of something that will become clear in the future. Then in verse 44, but then news from the east and the north will alarm him, this great ruler, and he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate many. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea, or between the seas, that phrase can mean, and will pitch his royal tents. We'll talk about that phrase in a moment. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out, and no one will help him. That's good news. <laughs> this is the part of step three, after you've had the, the arm set, and they have cast it, and then finally the pain's going to go away. Now, what about the location? This is interesting. That's why so many eyes are fixed on Israel and the surrounding nations right over there in what they call the Levant, just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea and just northeast of Egypt. There's so many things happening in that part of the world, and people are constantly looking at the news to say, could this be it? Could this be one of the, the signs that the end is near? Well, let's look at this spot on the map. What place would be fitting for such a temporary palace as mentioned in verse 45? What is the temporary palace or this tent of this great leader? That's the same phrase that would be used to talk about uh, the general's tent, just as they would be set up on the battlefield prior to a battle. It would be the temporary dwelling for that person who is the leader of an army. So if we know that there's some great leader who comes in the future, and he starts to deceive many, and he's very powerful, and he's doing signs and wonders and winning people over, and many people think he's the actual Messiah returned again. Then if he starts to build a temporary fortress or a palace or perhaps a tent that looks like they're amassing for some sort of war in the area that we're looking at on the map there that's going to be called the Jezreel Valley near Megiddo, then we're going to probably need to start looking up because things could start happening very quickly. And we're gonna to need to stand firm. We're gonna to need to start sharing the gospel with fervency like we've never shared it before. 
because something is about to happen and it's big. Many people think that the holy mountain that we're talking about here in verse 45 refers to Jerusalem. And a lot of the scholars would think that that refers specifically to Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham had attempted to sacrifice his son based on God's command, but then God sent that substitute, the ram, who was caught in the thicket. And so that was a foreshadowing of sending a substitute on our behalf, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It's a great uh, story with a great meaning, and it shows how merciful and gracious God really is to, to provide that substitute. Well, Mount Moriah is also the place now where the Temple Mount stands in the larger city of Jerusalem. But interestingly, back, and this is not terribly important for us just to know Jerusalem is okay. If you said, yeah, that refers to Jerusalem, that's fine. But there was the earlier city, the, the city of David, which is the smaller version of Jerusalem. When Joy and I were there in Israel, we saw that there's a smaller area that would have been so much easier for them to build a wall around because it's a whole lot fewer square miles than the entire Jerusalem and the Temple Mount that is there today. Uh, the Temple Mount that's there today really makes the city of David look pretty puny. And yet that was the mountain, which was really more of a hill. And they would call that the Holy Hill or the Holy Mountain. And that was Mount Zion. So when you hear about we're marching to Zion, that's the hill that they're talking about, the city of David. And then Christ was going to come and sit on the throne of David forever. So that's what we're talking about. If you just want to say Jerusalem, same location, maybe a slightly different mountain, but they're within walking distance of one another. So you'll still get half credit if you put that on the test. Back when uh, this was written, between the seas, probably, and this is my specific interpretation that differs with some of the scholars that I've read, and I'm pretty confident about that because I've been to Israel with joy, and we got to see where Galilee is located. You can see on the map there, can you see my cursor moving, by the way, when I'm doing that? Okay, you can see the Sea of Galilee right there. That's where Jesus, especially on the western edge near Capernaum, that's where Jesus did an awful lot of the things talked about in the New Testament. Much of his earthly ministry took place right there. His hometown is just down there at Nazareth to the southwest of Galilee, was within walking distance when he was going to be moving down there. They had fled after he was born in Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem, a couple of miles. They fled down to Egypt, and then they moved back up, and he was raised in Nazareth. Then he moved to do his earthly ministry in Galilee. Now, the whole region of Galilee is much bigger than that. That's around here. And in the southwestern portion of that region, we have this site, which we got to visit because now it's a dig. There's a tell there. It's Megiddo. Some great history happening there. And then there's this other valley. Let me advance this and show you a different thing here. First of all, from Mount Carmel, which is the mountain upon which the prophet Elijah had a throwdown with the Baal priests. He had this uh, worship contest. And when Elijah was there, he was calling upon Yahweh to show Baal that their pagan gods, their man-made gods, didn't have any power. The Baal worshipers were whipping themselves and calling on Baal and trying to do all these things to try to call on him to call down fire from heaven and lap up their sacrifice. And then Elijah, just to show how powerful Yahweh really was, had them pour all kinds of water on the altar, all over the sacrifice itself, and they dug a little trench around it and filled the trench with water. It was just soaked. Now, those of you who have tried to grill with charcoal on a rainy day, you understand, unless you've got a lot of lighter fluid, it ain't happening. But Elijah didn't need lighter fluid. Even with all that water, when he called on the name of 
Yahweh, Yahweh sent down fire from heaven and consumed everything, lapped it all up. So God won the day that time. And there's this statue, which we have looked at, Joy and I, with our own eyes. It's at the top of Mount Carmel. It's a geographic feature toward the western side so that if you're looking west on a clear day, you can actually see the Mediterranean Sea, just a few miles away from that. And then if you can look to the east down into the valley, you can look into the Valley of Jezreel. And that's where we start to see this red, it's outlined in red there for you. That whole valley stretches all the way from the west, the Mediterranean Sea, all the way across. And it's kind of a, a low plain area, especially this plain of Jezreel that gets right down in here that's important. And uh, right up around here is where Mount Carmel, oh, there it is right there, Mount Carmel is located. So if you can look down into that plain, you're looking at some wonderful farmlands, which is very lush. And you can look across and actually see some of the other cities. And you can look down and see the Tel Megiddo below there. Uh, Samaria is down to the south there. You could see that Jerusalem from the other map would be a little bit below here. So it's a little further south from Nazareth. You'd have to go south to find Jerusalem. So to be between the seas is between, I think, the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, even though it's a lake, but they called it the sea. And it would be between those areas in sort of this triangle, which would be the Jezreel Valley. It all describes it so accurately that to say it's by the holy mountain and between the seas, I think that's what verse 45 is talking about there. All that is to say, that's where this thing is going to take place, and it's important. So what is the Hebrew word for this area of the central location of the Jezreel Valley? There's a smaller place within that valley that's another valley within a valley, and they call that Haramagidon. Haramagidon in English would be, aha, Armageddon. Don't even think about it. <laughs> Armageddon has become synonymous with the place of the great battle. Why would that be? Well, because there have been many great battles there. And there's going to be a huge battle one day, we think, down in that area. And here's an, in, an important New Testament passage that makes me think that there's a case to be made as we're looking at these uh, different areas. A case to be made for a mid-tribulation deliverance for God's people. I have not gotten into a whole lot of detail about this because I don't want to dwell so deeply in the details of pre-tribulation, mid-trib, uh, all that kind of stuff, because we can get so focused on that that we miss the big picture. But I think it's important for us to understand that if it should be mid-tribulation, then some of these verses would say we need to hold on tightly to Jesus Christ, get to know him better than we've ever known him, because if, in fact, Christ doesn't come back until the, the mid part of this tribulation, after that first three and a half years, if it's a literal seven-year period of time, we're going to need to stand firm, and we need to know how to stand firm by being Christ-like to the people around us so that many can be saved. So here's some important things. Matthew 24, 21, for example. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Hmm. This sounds pretty similar to Daniel's words about the time of the great distress and the persecution in the last days. And then verse 22 of Matthew 24, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So verse 22 is very interesting in Matthew 24. If those days had not been, quote, cut short, no one would survive. Wow. Let me read that again. 
and let you picture how horrific this must be for that to happen. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. That's got to be pretty bad, wouldn't you imagine? Meaning that if these days continued with as much killing and as much persecution as was happening, as will happen, then everybody would die, especially all Christians. That shows us this, this persecution is indeed going to be unprecedented, even far worse than what happened when Antiochus IV swept in like a tidal wave and messed up Jerusalem really badly. It's going to be a big deal. So for those days to be shortened, sounds like something has to happen according to God's plan and that it shortens the length of time related to this tribulation and persecution, does it not? I think that's pretty obvious. So if the elect, which means those whose names are written in the book of life, are already taken away into the safety of God's presence prior to this awful season, which would be what the pre-tribulation believers would think, that means that we're going to be taken away from this earth and into safety before this great tribulation takes place, then why would the time of tribulation need to be cut short for their sake? You see the logic there? So I'm thinking that this is a good verse that would say, I think there's a case to be made, and I don't know definitively. I tell you, there's a lot of question marks that I keep putting in there because I've read all of these different uh, arguments, but I lean pretty heavily toward this one. If I had to put it on a scale, I would say this one is rising to the top of the one that I put the most credence in. And we just need to make sure that we're steady and standing for it. Now, if, if God calls us away before the tribulation, I'm not going to argue with I mentioned that before. I'm not going to say, oh, God, send me back. <laughs> no way. I'm going to say, hallelujah. He took us out. Good deal. Thank you for that, Lord. But if he comes halfway through this great tribulation, I want to make sure that I'm steeled for that, that I'm standing firm, and that I'm living with sacrificial love for the people who need Christ the most, and I'm willing to lay down my life for my friends if necessary so they can see Christ more clearly in my life. That's what I see happening in the New Testament passages that relate to Daniel and which relate to Revelation. So here's another reason why I lean pretty strongly toward a mid-trib deliverance of God's people. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So how will believers be able to lead many to faith in Christ if they are already delivered? kind of goes along with that same logic, that if he's taken us away, then he won't have to cut that time short for their sake. And if many are being led to Christ at the first part of this tribulation, who's going to be leading them to Christ? I think it's going to be believers. I think it'll be Christians, those who are actually standing firm and not just defending their own right to worship. They'll be laying down their own rights for the sake of showing what Christ is like to those folks, because greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for a friend. And if we have friends who are unbelievers, the friends will see us and watch how sacrificially we're loving other people around us, as Christ did for us. All the things that Christ was teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount and through his life itself, then many are going to come to faith in Christ. That's what's going to lead people to faith in Christ. So in the last days, when things are getting really bad on earth, many lost people will see Christ-like behavior. Folks, we better start getting ready for that. 
I'm speaking prophetically now, not just as a priest or a pastor. I'm, I'm speaking with prophetic terms here. We need to prepare ourselves to be more Christ-like if we're going to be alive on the earth when the tribulation comes. We need to start practicing Christ-like behavior first toward one another so that people will see us as a church and say, I can tell they're Christians. How do you know? Because I can see by the way they love one another. And then we need to be willing to lay down our lives for other people, especially those who are outsiders, because that's what Jesus did. And he did it for us. He hung out with the sinners. He went to eat with Matthew, the tax collector, and other many tax collectors. You couldn't get any lower on the rung of the socially acceptable ladder than Matthew. And then he even commended a woman who was wiping his feet with her tears and hair and said, yes, those who have been forgiven much loveth much. Folks, we need to look at what Jesus did and imitate him and be transformed by his spirit. Many will be brought to faith. So says the scripture here. Many will be brought to faith. That's good news. But many is not all. That's not universalism. Not everybody's going to be saved. There will still be people exercising their free will, and they'll see and hear all the good things from Christianity. They'll see people laying down their lives. They'll see martyrs happening before their eyes, and yet they will still refuse, and they will side with the Antichrist. So we know that this last days, it's going to be horrific. It's going to be a mixed bag of the worst of times and the best of times, which means that we need to shine. We believers, if we're alive on the earth when this happens, man, we're going to have to be like that city on a hilltop that the light cannot be hidden. I grew up in Arizona, and when you drive north of Phoenix and you're heading up toward Flagstaff, there's a hill to the west of you several miles in the little tiny mining town called Jerome. And if you could see that late at night, it would sparkle like stars on the horizon. That's Jerome. You couldn't miss it. On the dark night across that desert, even though it would be 12 or 13 miles away from where you were driving, it was so easily visible. That's what we as believers need to be to the people around us. We need to shine so that we're unmistakably like Christ. We need to be the light of the world. Every day is one day closer to the end of the world. Now, I can say that definitively. That's just logical. <laughs> We can't reverse time. We can't back it up. And so, yeah, we're one day closer. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? I don't know. But I want to be ready in case it is. And there's enough evidence to show that there's so many things that have already been predicted that have already happened that we just can't predict when it might be. So I just want to be ready. If tomorrow somebody started to erect some sort of a tent and it was a general of, of an army and they're right there at Armageddon, I would say, oh, we better pay attention. It could be happening pretty soon. Some of the things that we see in Daniel that show that we're getting closer, it says many will go here and there. We can travel anywhere now. I mean, we can get there so quickly. And there will be an increase of knowledge. Can you imagine? My grandfather, who lived to be 100 years old, great-grandpapa love, went to Texas in a covered wagon, traveled across the southern states in the United States, and they, they ended up in Texas. He made his home there. That same little boy in a covered wagon grew up and watched on television the first man on the moon. 
that's quite an increase in knowledge and learning and application. There's so much of that now. My car is so much smarter than I'll ever be. Mm -hmm. It does things that I never dreamed a car could do. Will even warn me if I'm starting to get off to the edge. Or if I start to lift my hand off the steering wheel, a little red thing comes up on a screen that says, put your hands back on the wheel. It's like a backseat driver. It's amazing. They're up, well, it's front seat driver, but it's amazing what can happen now. All these things that we have seen, uh, you can sing a duet with somebody else across the world through TikTok, and it can be distributed worldwide, globally. What I'm saying is that all these things that were predicted, they're happening. They're happening right before our eyes. We've seen natural disasters, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, hurricanes, violence, immorality is championed and called good. Black is becoming white. People can say things that are absolutely not true and other people grab a hold of it and believe it in a heartbeat because they're not even willing to check it out to see what's really truth or not. We're in a post-truth age. Where do we find truth? We've got to find it in the character of God. That's the source of all truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. So if we want to know what truth is, we need to start to get to know what Jesus is like. And you get to know him through his word, especially in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Read the Gospels. We need to be immersed in him through his word. So here's another thing that I think is important. And this is my specific personal interpretation of this. I might be wrong. I'm willing to admit that if I am, but there are some, as I presented early on, the variety of viewpoints about millennialism, when the thousand year reign will come, when Christ is going to be reigning for a thousand years. Some think that it's just amillennial in that it's uh, metaphoric and that, that a thousand years in prophetic history usually refers to something that's unlimited and so that Christ comes and it'll be an unlimited reign. If that's the case, then that means that when he recreates the heaven and the earth, then he will reign forever, forever and ever. Other people say, yes, it's going to be a literal thousand years, but then they differ as to when that could start. And some people, especially those who would consider that maybe post-millennialism, I believe, uh, and there are lots of nuances even within these different frameworks, but some would say that as soon as he ascended to be in heaven, that's when this thousand year reign started. And we think, how could you do that if he's not on the earth? Well, he's going to do that through his agency, the church. Uh, we're going to be bringing as it is in heaven onto earth, kind of like the Lord's Prayer. And if we're bringing the reign of Christ to bear on the earth, then there's going to have this huge revival and this God's kingdom is going to flourish. And we're going to see evidence that there's everything happening that relates to God on earth. I'm not seeing that, folks. I'm just not seeing that. Much of the church in this last 14 months was splintered and self-serving and divided and turning against one another. And they were more interested in control or a false sense of control. Folks, we don't really have much control, honestly, than in being Christ to others. I'm being honest. It's difficult. I have a lot to repent from from last year because of things that I thought and said. Pandemics bring out the worst in folks I've discovered. But I don't see a lot of evidence for this kind of thousand-year reign through the church yet. It'd be nice if it happened, if we had a huge global revival, but I'm not seeing that, which means that if we're going to have to wait until Christ returns 
And then he starts to usher in this reign. It's going to be forever and ever. That's going to be a great time. But until then, that means we're going to have a tribulation, the likes of which we have not even imagined. And we better start getting ready. How do we get ready for it? Not by storing up armaments. We don't fight the battles the same way the world fights battles. Not by storing up all the things that the world would store up for an apocalyptic event. Folks, we're talking about the kingdom of God here. We need to be more like Christ. That's what Christ kept trying to say and living it out to us. If we're going to prepare for the tribulation, we need to become Christ to the people around us today. But the good news, this is good news. Everyone whose name is found is written in the book will be delivered everybody, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever is a big word. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. That's good. Well, what is this book? The book of life that we talk about, or the Lamb's book of life. Paul talks about it in Philippians. He says, and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life, uh -huh. the writer of Hebrews talks about it, Hebrews 12, 23, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Uh -huh. John talks about this book when he was on the Isle of Patmos and he was writing Revelation. He says, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the new heaven and the new earth. God will bring about as Christ begins his eternal reign. And here's another one. I love that, especially in this particular translation. The new heaven and the new earth God will bring about as Christ begins his eternal reign. Does that give you a clue about when I think the thousand year or eternal reign is going to be happening? I'm kind of, I'm tipping my hand here. I'm showing you my cards. I believe that that thousand years is personally not a literal thousand years. I think it has to do with this metaphoric meaning forever and ever, and that it won't happen until he recreates the new heaven and the new earth. I'm not going to argue with him if I'm wrong. I'm just saying, this means that we need to really be prepared. We really need to live faithfully. We really need to be Christ to the people around us. Because if it turns out this way, a lot of people who are alive on the earth need to see Christ represented through true believers when that happens. So what do you think about this uh, Lamb's Book of Life? What is it? How do you get your name written into it? Well, think of the book as a birth register. Your name gets placed there when you get born into God's family. Jesus, John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, uh, yeah, okay, Jesus, th that's kind of impossible. How can someone be born again? That seems biologically completely impossible. Jesus is saying, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. This is the birth from above. It means that you're becoming a new creation in Christ. Paul uses that term a lot. He transforms your spirit and prepares you to be like him, you become adopted into his family. It's the spiritual rebirth because our soul, which lives forever, is transformed and is covered over completely by Christ's righteousness when you accept his forgiveness. So we're not talking about a physical rebirth here. How do you get your name written into that book? Well, you can do the ABC. You can admit, believe, and commit. You can admit that you're a sinner and say, yep, I recognize that. Boy, howdy, did I ever recognize that during the pandemic? 
so many times when I was tempted to say things that I probably shouldn't have said, most of the time in my own home, but I said them and I had to repent from them just because people differed in their opinions than of my own opinion. And so I recognize in myself, yeah, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. And I go to some pretty selfish places there. So I need to admit that and just say, God, I need forgiveness from you for whatever it is that we might've done. And then believe is the B, we admit and then we believe. We believe that Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty for sin because I couldn't possibly pay that myself. So I admit, I believe, and then the C word I commit we commit to stop living our life for ourselves and we live it for him. We commit to that. We say, I'm gonna live as though I'm making a commitment to reading your word, to getting to know what Christ really is like, especially diving into the character of Christ as seen, as revealed in the revelatory word of God, especially in the gospels. And then we need to continue to confess to him every time we have slipped up because First John 1 John 1.9, if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you have never taken that step to do the ABCs, then I would just invite you to do that, even right now. And I would just say a simple prayer, because it is simple. And we tend to complicate the gospel, and it's a lot more simple than we might think. So let me have you bow your heads, and I'll say this. If you're in the privacy of your own home, you could even say that out loud. But this is what you could pray if you wanted to take that step and invite Jesus to become the Lord of your life as well. God, I admit that I am a sinner. I recognize the selfishness that crops up in my own life and the fact that I can become pretty ugly in my attitude toward other people sometimes. And so I need your forgiveness. And I do believe that you died in my place. I can see all the evidence now that's being laid out before me. There's all the eyewitnesses, all the things that have been uh, shared over the last few months, and I recognize that you took my place on a cross. The incarnate God, Christ, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, took sin upon himself for my sake, and I thank you for that. And now I accept your forgiveness. I've asked for it, and I accept it, and now I commit myself to stop living for myself. I want to take myself off the throne. I want to place Christ on the throne of my life, and I want him to guide me. And I commit to learning about him by studying the Bible and hanging out with other believers who are studying the Bible together so that we can get to know him more and more and to abide in him so that you will flow freely through me, through your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for that. Thank you for making me into a new creation in Christ. Oh, there's such freedom in that. And I pray now that you will continue to guide my steps because I'm on the path I'm walking the journey with Christ and with fellow believers, and now I'm a part of his family. Thank you for adopting me into your family. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, this is getting kind of down to brass tacks, isn't it? This is one of those sermons that I can't avoid saying some things that may sound a little tough. They sound a little harsh, but I didn't write it. And I'm trying to be as honest as I can from God's word and let you know that I want to help prepare us so that if it is in our lifetime, we need to be practicing for it right now. And that's sort of the whole point of this prophetic book. If it happens six lifetimes from now, six generations down the line, if it's our great, 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 great grandchildren who are dealing with the great tribulation, we should be instilling within our children so they can still instill within their children the blessings of following Jesus Christ 
so that there will be those who will stand firm and won't cave in and start doing things that are very unchristlike, thinking we're doing God a favor when the great tribulation happens. Let's not do that. Let's be like Christ and let's love one another and love outsiders so that they can be drawn in and become insiders.